This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favorite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, and welcome to Instant Genius, a bite-sized masterclass in podcast form. I'm Jason Goodger, commissioning editor at BBC Science Focus magazine. In this episode, I speak to Stephen Pinker, professor of psychology at Harvard University and author of the book Rationality. We discuss claims that humans are not simply an irrational species, investigate the common biases and fallacies that can cloud our judgment, and explore some of the critical thinking tools that we can apply in our own lives to aid our reasoning and decision making. Today we're going to be talking about rational and irrational thoughts and beliefs. So I think that probably the subject this will bring up in most people's minds when they think about, let's say, irrational beliefs, is the idea of conspiracy theories. And these these are very far-ranging, you know, from the relatively harmless, such as certain fast food chains sell chicken nuggets made out of pink slime, but they range all the way up to things that are potentially harmful, like billionaires are using vaccines to implant tracking microchips into us etc but they must they all they all seem quite different but they must have a common theme so what kind of qualities does such an irrational belief have one of them is a property of the belief itself that makes it perversely immune to refutation namely the fact that there's no evidence for this conspiracy is proof of what a diabolical conspiracy it is there's certain ideas that by their very nature are uh, immune to refutation, like if you disagree uh, with the uh, idea that such and such is racist, that proves that you are a racist, or God works in mysterious ways, and uh, if we were to understand why he did the things that we did, then that would uh, deflate the cosmic mystery that God wants to impress us. So these are, are, are memes in Richard Dawkins' original sense, not a picture of a cat with a funny caption, but a meme in the sense that an idea that possesses 
traits that aids in its own propagation. And a conspiracy theory uh, is adapted to be resistant to refutation. So that's one. Another is that when it comes to questions about major events, major processes, historical uh, dynamics, the origins of the universe, the causes of fortune and misfortune, the course of history, things that people have no direct access to, unlike, say, the, 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 the mechanics of their own, their own lives, uh, whether you've got a clean shirt to wear this morning, whether the kids have done their homework or not, you know, people are pretty rational. They, they don't have any choice. Reality would punish them if they weren't. But when it comes to things that don't impinge on our lives, uh, such as the, the uh, causes of historical events, our, our natural mindset is that whether there is evidence for them or, or against them is, is irrelevant. There can't be. You can't find out. And so people instead subscribe to, uh, to myths, to narratives, to hero tales that make their own side look good and make the, what they see as their enemies look, look bad, make them look evil. So a lot of conspiracy theories are appealing because they have the right villains, they have the, uh, the, the right heroes. And to those of us who say, well, wait a sec, you can't just believe something because it makes your enemies look bad. You should only believe true things. <clears throat> and the, uh, that, that's a very reasonable thing to say, but it is a luxury of living in a time in which we have science, we have journalism, we have objective record keeping, we have data sets, we have archival materials. We didn't evolve with any of those things. And so for beliefs that are, in a sense, cosmic or mythological, people's natural inclination is just to believe what, make, what makes them feel good, what makes them feel superior. And just to be concrete, I take a, a crazy conspiracy theory, like Pizzagate, the idea that Hillary Clinton ran a child sex ring uh, out of a, a basement of a Washington area pizzeria. And that just sounds barking mad to, to most of us, and there's no evidence for it. But people who believe it, uh, it's not clear whether they are literally committed to the factual truth of that or whether they're really saying, I think Hillary Clinton is so depraved that she's capable of uh, such a heinous act, and who's to know that she, she, she didn't do it? And, we, and to those of us who say, well, wait a second, you know, why don't have anyone call the police? Why don't we see any records of that that investigative journalists have uncovered? Uh, we're re betraying a mindset that you can, in principle, get the factual answer to any question. And that is not particularly intuitive. So you mentioned there something interesting about myths. So a lot of people might think that this sort of thinking is a, a new, a modern phenomenon, but that's not the case, is it? Oh, quite the contrary. And when you mentioned conspiracy theories that might be dangerous, uh, I, I, I can give an example from my own family. My grandmother's earliest memory was the Kishinev pogrom in 1905, in which many Jews in, in the town of Kishinev, in what's now Moldova, were uh, massacred or raped because of a viral rumor that Jews had sacrificed Christian children to use their blood to make matzah, the ceremonial unleavened bread. Now, this was uh, clearly a conspiracy theory. Uh, there were other conspiracy theories circulating at the time that Jews controlled the world economy, that they believed that they conspired to, to, to um, bring about Germany's defeat in World War I. Anti-Semitic conspiracies continue to proliferate, and uh, to say that they can be dangerous is to, 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 put, to put it mildly as an understatement. So on with other ethnic groups. Many pogroms and ethnic riots began 
with a rumor that they had conspired to poison the wells or to um, cheat people out of their savings and so on. So, so they, they are venerable. So I've mentioned some uh, quite varied and quite extreme examples there, but um, there are still lots of, let's say, lesser irrational beliefs that persist in society. And one that you know our listeners are probably particularly interested in is the sort of pervasiveness and maybe even persuasiveness of pseudoscience. Indeed, not necessarily a conspiracy theory, but uh, another example of the kind of florid irrationality that people are, that I have discovered people are interested in when you bring up the topic of rationality. I, I wrote the book and I taught a course on rationality with the goal of explaining some of the major tools of critical thinking and, and reasoning. Uh, what is probability? What is logic? What is game theory? What is the theory of rational choice? How do you distinguish correlation from causation? And uh, you know, people nod and they say, oh yeah, it's, uh, I guess I should know these things. But what I really want you to tell me is why do people believe in astrology or uh, in uh, crystal healing power uh, or past lives, uh, all these examples of pseudoscience? The, the answer is, is uh, complex, but I think at the heart of it, it's that we all have certain intuitive ways of understanding the world that we may even have inherited as part of our evolutionary legacy, things that, that, that serve us well in the absence of real science a kind of essentialist folk biology, a general intuition that people have, sorry, living things have some kind of essence suffusing them, some kind of invisible magic substance that gives them their life, their structure, their, their, their organization, that disease is caused by the pollution or adulteration of your pure essence by some foreign contaminant. Health consists of purging it. And so you get belief in culture after culture, not just our culture a couple of hundred years ago, in bloodletting as a cure, in purging, in enemas, in sweating, in cupping, in and the, the, the general idea that you've got to get rid of toxins, whatever, whatever, whatever they are. Uh, conversely, that kind of essentialist folk belief also leads to vaccine resistance, which is as old as vaccines and is kind of understandable when you remind yourself that what is a vaccine, but it is a weakened form of the actual germ that gives you the disease injected into your bloodstream or into your muscles. It's not surprising that that is a, uh, gives rise to a feeling of kind of ick or uh, a yuck reaction. Now, those of us who, who do get vaccinated, a ra- highly rational thing to do, but we do it not because we ourselves can reconstruct the science behind it. You ask me, how do vaccines protect you? And I'll say, oh, it has something to do with antibodies, doesn't it? You know, and I consider my, I'm a scientist, but there's only so much immunology I know. Basically what I do, what most people do get vaccines, is they, they trust the scientists. They say, well, they have their methods. If they say it's safe that's uh, and effective, that, that's good enough for me. For people who are alienated from mainstream institutions, who think of scientists not as the, those with the best access to the truth, but just another another tribe, uh, you can blow off science and just say, I, I'm just not going to do it. It's, it's my body and it, it just uh, seems icky to me. And there are other intuitions like that that give rise to forms of pseudoscience, such as the intuition that we all have, that everyone has a body and they have a mind. And the mind is somehow attached to the body. The mind is what we deal with when we deal with other people as as humans rather than as hunks of flesh. We assume that other people 
uh, see things and know things and hear things and, and want things just like we do, even though we can't see their minds, but we assume they have them. Well, from there, it's, it's a pretty short step to imagine that there can be minds that just happen not to be attached to bodies. And so you get belief in ghosts and spirits and saints and souls and reincarnation and, and uh, powers of telepathy. It's a natural intuition. Again, if you are, if you have a scientific mindset, if you know that the only way that we perceive things is via physical energy, if the mental activity comes from the physiological activity of the brain, then you discount these intuitions of free-floating souls. But if you haven't signed on to the scientific worldview and to basic scientific facts like neural activity is what gives rise to consciousness, then these folk beliefs seem, can seem pretty compelling. So you mentioned there the, the potential idea of, um, of this being part of evolution. So if you could say, like, I suppose if you accept the law of evolution uh, by natural selection, in any case, in the first place, why aren't these irrational beliefs or this style of irrational thinking? Why haven't those people been weeded out by evolution? Well, there is. Uh, I, I don't know if it's uh, as popular in Britain as it is in the United States, the so-called Darwin Awards. This is the, the humorous uh, pseudo prizes for people who uh, weed, weed their genes out of the gene pool by acts of mind-boggling stupidity. Um, it, it, it's kind of a joke because evolution doesn't work to, to, to improve the species, but to improve the individual or even the replicator. But these are like the, the guy who strapped a military surplus rocket onto the back of his pickup truck uh, to go really fast and flattened himself against a cliff face and, and other acts of, uh, of recklessness. So you're, you're right that in the fullness of time, people who, say, reject effective medicine in favor of uh, quack cures and, and new age uh, woo-woo are less likely to survive an illness than those who take antibiotics and, and chemotherapy. But that takes a long time. It's a evolution as a speed limit measured in generations. Also, any selective pressure has to be uniform over the entire pool of humans all over the world. We, we, we interbreed with one another pretty readily. So it's something that we've only enjoyed for a few centuries is unlikely to have shaped the gene pool. Yeah, so sort of following on from the idea of evolution then, as our sort of capacity as a society, you know, to become, to make greater use of technology and, and science and that sort of thing, has that had any effect on our ability to think rationally? Uh, it, it has. As irrational as we are, there are some superstitious ways of thinking that are, have been uh, kind of pushed to the fringes that used to be mainstream. So uh, take many people's example of an irrational world leader, Donald Trump. He, um, for, for all the, um, the, the bullheaded things that he did or the, the, the boneheaded things that he did, he didn't uh, consult astrologers. He didn't read omens into uh, lunar eclipses. He didn't hold seances. He didn't bring in spiritual leaders to commune with the souls of, of uh, dead ancestors to, to give them, impart their wisdom. Uh, these are things that, that mainstream leaders did not so long ago. Abraham Lincoln brought um, spiritual elders and psychics in, into, the, into the White House. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who created a character that's just the, uh, the, the epitome of rationality, uh, he believed in fairies. 
And he was hoodwinked by uh, some fake photos that he sincerely believed had theories. So we can't, that, that would seem to be risable today. And so there are ways in which we, we do, do tend to improve. And perhaps an even more cons obvious one is the so-called Flynn effect. The fact that IQ scores, uh, contrary to, to, to your impression of, of, of pervasive stupidity, have actually increased for, for a century. But they haven't increased, that increase does not reflect increases in raw brain power and say how many digits you can repeat back backwards. It does uh, seem to reflect a kind of scientific intelligence that we often take for granted. We don't even think of it as scientific until um, it's pointed out to us. But I'll ask you a question. This might be a, a typical question on an IQ test. What do a fish and a crow have in common? Well, traditionally, uh, you ask a, a, a peasant or a farmer, and, and this has been done, the answer would be absolutely nothing. What are you talking about? A fish lives in the water, a crow lives in the air. Uh, a fish swims, a crow flies, a, a crow is black, a fish has scales, a crow can eat a fish, a fish can't eat a crow. Now, today, even a child might say they're both animals or they're both living things. That's a scientific answer. It's categorizing things out of the realm of everyday impressions of what things look like, but in terms of an abstract scientific category, maybe even a vertebrate if they've taken some high school biology. So that kind of question has shown an increase in it and suggests that a kind of scientific thinking has penetrated, penetrated the, uh, the, the bulk of the population. So one of the, the things that a lot of people say about these, let's say, slightly wild ideas um, and that they're being spread by the internet and by social media, is that an oversimplification? It's certainly part of the, the, uh, the answer, that the media have become democratized. But we've always had media that have spread, that have, uh, spread the pseudoscience and conspiracy theories. The supermarket tabloids that are uh, a fixture of American supermarkets, and I, I assume British ones too, uh, sightings of Elvis Presley, baby, baby born talking, uh, all kinds of, of nonsense and pseudoscience have been avidly consumed for many, many decades. And before that, even when you think about the miracles of mainstream religion, uh, what are they but, but uh, uh, paranormal phenomena, phenomena that spread as fake news? So fake news and paranormal phenomena and uh, weird stuff is kind of in the default. I mean, that's just what public knowledge consisted of until science uh, made, made uh, inroads. But those inroads uh, are not the entirety of the, the human species. And many people just haven't got the word that science is a better way of ascertaining reality than uh, entertaining stories. So, of course, it's, it's like easy to laugh at this sort of thing, like somebody saying that they've seen Elvis and somebody else believing it, etc. But one point that you make is that lots of people do succumb to irrational thinking. Um, and you mentioned several, several different ways in which they do that by certain biases or fallacies. Um, so what are the most sort of common ones of those, those fallacies or biases? I think the most consequential is the availability fallacy or the availability bias. This was a term coined by Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman, who are pioneers in the study of human judgment and decision-making. This is the tendency to judge risk and probability and danger by how easily you can recall examples that are available in memory. So if there is a shark attack in the news that morning, then you don't go into the water. If there's a school shooting, 
for a terrorist attack, then you feel unsafe uh, because of terrorists, not appreciating that you're in much greater danger from uh, car crashes, falling down the stairs, drownings, to say nothing of air pollution and obesity and other contributors to, to mortality. Uh, but you don't, there aren't headlines about people who die in car crashes, typically, or who fall, fall down the stairs and, and hit their head. Uh, there are headlines on plane crashes and terrorist attacks. And so journalism is a kind of availability machine. It, it uh, makes certain uh, uh, photogenic events uh, salient in our, it burns them into our brains. And so we think that they are prevalent. That's one. Another one is uh, also, I'll give credit to Tversky and Kahneman, representativeness. We reason by stereotype instead of by uh, taking into account uh, base rates. Uh, so if you get a uh, positive test result for a rare disease, you might you know, start start putting your affairs in order and writing your will. Uh, but as long as the test has false positives and the base rate of the disease in the population is low, that is, it's a rare disease, chances are that most of the positives are false positives. And even doctors don't really appreciate it and they over-diagnose uh, um, rare diseases just because someone presents with the symptoms. In what what's called Bayesian reasoning, that is appealing to the Reverend Bayes' uh, famous theorem for how you calibrate degree of credence in a hypothesis according to the strength of the evidence, uh, you should take into account not just how likely are the symptoms or the test results of a person has the disease, but how likely are they to have the disease in the first place, given how rare or prevalent it is in the population. And, and medical students are sometimes warned uh, against this base rate neglect, and, and their teachers try to shake some Bayesian reasoning uh, into them with a, it's now become a cliche, uh, if you hear hoofbeats outside the window, don't look for a zebra. That is, even though it is true that zebras make hoofbeats, but given the base rate, chances are it's a horse rather than a zebra. That's, that's a second example. Maybe an, another one is to uh, fail to cost out the probability times the payoff in making a decision. People will, uh, say, buy an extended warranty for appliances, often at all, like a quarter or a third of the price of the appliance itself. And if they stop to think, uh, how much would it cost to replace the appliance? How likely is it for modern appliances to fail? Maybe they think twice about taking out a life insurance policy on their toaster. Uh, and conversely, another failure to take into account probability and cost is people who take ridiculous risks like texting while driving. For the, the, the tiny benefit of getting your social media post a few minutes early, you are taking some chance at losing your life, which presumably is a cost that is much greater than the benefit of reading your email a bit sooner. One bias that, that you talk about that I thought was particularly um, interesting and perhaps powerful is the, the my side bias. Indeed, the uh, my side bias may be the most powerful of the 200 or so biases that psychologists have, uh, have, have racked up. And this is the bias to um, engage in motivated reasoning. Motivated reasoning just means you start off with a conclusion that you want to be true and you uh, arrange your line of reasoning so it takes you there, put in the service of the, the, the glory, the correctness, the nobility of your group, your, your, your religion your political ideology, uh, your sports club, and, and to, to express the opinions that make you a hero to your 
own social circle that prevent you from getting ostracized or canceled, uh, again, in your own so social circle, often by ratifying some sacred myth that makes your side look, look good, demonizing the other side. There's a, a perverse sense in which that's rational for every individual who does it. There's nothing rational about becoming a social pariah or outcast because you, your beliefs contradict the prevailing wisdom of your social clique. There is something irrational when everyone does it. And so instead of people assessing whether vaccines work, whether climate change has human causes, people just champion the belief that is a sacred value of their own coalition. So is rational thinking a learned skill? And if so, you know, how do we go about learning it? How do we go about developing these methods of critical thinking? It's not entirely learned. that It's a birthright of the human species. We're all rational when it comes to our our, our physical surroundings, our day-to-day -day challenges. And that's not just true of the, the modern West, but it's true of every human society. In fact, I start out uh, rationality with a pretty extended discussion of the San hunter-gatherers of the Kalahari Desert. Because so many people have the stereotype that hunter-gatherers, who are, are probably represent the lifestyle of our ancestors, uh, just react to danger with reflexive knee-jerk thinking. That's very unfair to hunter-gatherers who are highly cerebral and, and try to figure out uh, what kind of animal left tracks by a circuitous chains of, of uh, evidence. So we do have rationality as our, our birthright. However, it is rationality tied to our lived experience, our day-to-day -day challenges. It's commingled with our factual knowledge of the world. What doesn't come naturally are the tools of rationality that are much more abstract, that we even uh, summarize in terms of abstract symbols, like if P implies Q, then not Q implies not P. Or the probability of the hypothesis given the data is the probability of the data multiplied by the probability of the data given the hypothesis, etc. Now, these are a little more alien to us. There are all these you know, P's and Q's and X's and Y's. Those you really do have to learn in school. But they're very powerful because they allow us to transcend our experience. You can plug in any P or Q and come to new conclusions. That's why these tools are so powerful. But they are gifts of, of civilization, of, of past logicians and mathematicians and scientists. And you really do have to learn them in school. Although school is not enough. School is not enough. Well, it isn't in the sense that, so one easy, what seems like a, quick fix for irrationality is courses in critical thinking. You teach students you know, what probability is, you teach them to avoid traps like arguing from anecdote or setting up a straw man and knocking him down as opposed to considering the strongest possible version of an argument you oppose. And they're, they're, they're good as far as they go, but they're kind of like all courses, namely as soon as students write the exam uh, and, and leave for the summer, they forget everything they learned in the course. And, and the thing is that rationality can't be just treated as another subject like Renaissance painting or, or invertebrate biology. It's kind of how you should think about everything uh, in the arts, in the sciences, in the social sciences, in the humanities. It's just how you come to sound conclusions. And so in addition to being explicitly taught, which I think it should be, I don't think it should, it, it should be ignored. I think it should give have a prominent place in the curriculum, but it's also got to be something that we have to make second nature in our in our debates, in our editorials, in our op-eds. Uh, you just should not be able to get away with arguing from an anecdote. 
Uh, and we're very far from having that as one of the norms or mores of civilized discussion. So it's the responsibility not only of the individual to apply these these rational thought patterns, but also of large institutions like governments and, and media outlets. Indeed. So it should be part of our just everyday etiquette of, of how you argue for any position. But also it has to be uh, entrenched in certain institutions that are dedicated to pursuing uh, objective truth, rational choices, despite all of the self-serving biases that we humans are, are, are burdened with. So these are the kind of communities that we join that have rules that are designed to, to push back or to work around our biases. Uh, tools like in, in science, peer review, no matter how much you want your ideas to be true, no matter how fancy schmancy a scientist you are, how many Nobel Prizes you've won, how prestigious your professorship, you still can't publish anything you want. It's got to be vetted by others. And you've got to make empirical predictions that could be falsified. You've got to take uh, questions and accept criticism from someone, no matter how low their rank. Uh, it's fair game. These are kind of the rules of the game. Likewise, in, in journalism, you've got to source your claims. You've got to get uh, interview people affected by the story who might have insider knowledge. You still have editors. You have fact checkers. If if a paper a respectable paper prints uh, something that they then discover to be wrong, they print a retraction. Uh, in governance, you have freedom of speech, you have parliamentary debate, you've got checks and balances, separation of powers. Now, all of these can be seen as, as workarounds for the fact that we're not angels. None of us can uh, implement our truth because it's probably not the truth. To get at the truth, you need an arena of debate and criticism and fact-checking. And so these institutions, like a, uh, a respectable journalistic outlet, like a scientific society, like a university, like a, a government record-keeping agency, like an international organization, like the, uh, the various UN agencies, they all work because they're committed to truth ascertained by rules that everyone signs on to. So sort of by way of closing then, taking into account all that we've said, do you think, you know, the human race is on a trajectory towards rationality? You, how optimistic are you? It's, um, there's, there's no simple answer because the human race is a, a, an awful lot of people and some of them are becoming more and more rational. We have uh, data being brought to bear on questions that used to be handled just by conventional wisdom and hunches. We've uh, got um, uh, evidence-based medicine. We've got uh, data-driven sports and policing and feedback-informed uh, therapy. Uh, we have more and more areas in which we have become more rational, as we can see in accomplishments like, like smartphones, like vaccines, like space probes. Uh, on the other hand, we still have uh, all of the ways that human reason can fall back on superstition and myth and... and um, uh, uh, and, and good, good narratives as opposed to true, true uh, hypotheses. It's, a, it's always going to be a battle to push back against them just because that's our instinctive way of thinking. Thank you for listening to this episode of Instant Genius. That was Harvard psychologist Stephen Pinker. 
If you want to know more about his thoughts on reason and critical thinking, check out his book, Rationality. The current issue of BBC Science Focus magazine is out now. Pick up a copy wherever you buy your favourite magazines or visit sciencefocus.com. <laughs>